Isaiah, chapter 11, reading the first 10 verses. The peaceful kingdom. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full in the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwellings shall be glorious. Thanks be to God for his word. The first book of Corinthians, chapter 12, reading verses 4 to 11. Spiritual gifts. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. All of these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. Thanks be to God for his word. It is strange but true that one of the most divisive issues for Christians over the past hundred years or so has been a difference of opinion about what do you think? Calvinism versus Arminianism? Human sexuality? The role of women in church leadership? No, actually it has been 
true for all of those, but the thing that has been most divisive has been a difference of opinion about the way in which the Holy Spirit gifts and empowers people for ministry. And this morning, I'm going to invite us to think about what the gifting of the Holy Spirit might mean for us who gather for worship and witness here at Bloomsbury. Today also marks the beginning of our new sermon series, which I have rather cheekily entitled The Anti-Lectionary. If you're wondering what all this is about, let me just explain for a moment. The normal lectionary, or the revised common lectionary, as it is more properly called, is a set pattern of readings which takes those congregations who follow it on a three-year journey through the Bible, with each week having assigned readings from a gospel, an epistle, a psalm, and another Old Testament passage. If you go to a Church of England congregation or a Methodist church, these will be the passages that you hear in worship. If you listen to the service on Radio 4 this morning, they would have been the set passages that you heard. If you go back exactly three years later, you'll hear exactly the same passages again. That's the way it works. And some Baptist churches use it and some don't. We have kind of used it here at Bloomsbury over the years, but by the same token, we felt free to depart from it if we wanted to. And there are many advantages to following the lectionary readings each week. But there are also a couple of disadvantages. Firstly, I'm not always sure that I'm always going to have something entirely new or interesting to say on a passage that just three years ago I preached on in the same church. I suppose I could repeat sermons and see if anyone notices, but that doesn't feel quite right. Secondly, and possibly more significantly from my point of view, there are large parts of the Bible which simply never make the cut and which don't ever get looked at on a Sunday. So the original idea of the anti-lectionary preaching series was to make some space for us to spend time with those passages which are normally passed over. It's, a kind of, it's kind of metamorphosed slightly in the making, partly due to some very helpful suggestions from our assistant treasurer, Philip. It now includes some passages or topics that you might not have thought you'd ever hear preached at Bloomsbury. And this morning's reading from 1 Corinthians on the gifts of the Spirit falls into that category. Just to say, if you weren't here last week and you therefore didn't get the little uh, white writing on black background flyer uh, with the preaching plan for between now and Christmas on it, please collect one from the foyer on your way out. They're on the table out there. Anyway, back to the gifts of the Spirit. Many of us here this morning will have come to faith in or had experience of churches which emphasise the exercising of the gifts of the Spirit. If, for you, this happened in the UK, the chances are that the church in question had been influenced by what has become known as the charismatic movement. The name charismatic comes from the ancient Greek word charisma, 
which means gift of grace. And it refers to the belief that God freely gives to those who follow Jesus the gifts of the Spirit, which we heard about in our reading earlier from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. The idea here is that each congregation should include people who have the gift of wisdom, or knowledge, or faith, or healing, or miracles, or prophecy, or discernment, or tongues, or interpretation, such that all the gifts will be present in each congregation. That's the kind of basic idea of the charismatic movement. Also, the belief often expressed in charismatic churches is that each individual should have at least one of these gifts to use, if not more. The charismatic movement has influenced churches not just in the UK, but across the world and across denominations, from Anglican to Catholic, uh, from Methodist to Baptist, and so on. This means that whereas you used to be able to tell the difference between, say, a Baptist service and a Methodist service fairly easily, because they had distinct worship traditions, different hymnody, that kind of stuff, these days, a charismatic Methodist service will look very much like a charismatic Baptist service, just as it will a charismatic Anglican service, a charismatic United Reformed service, a charismatic Catholic service, or whatever. They'll tend to sing the same songs, most of which they've learned in the great ecumenical worship revival things at places like Spring Harvest or Soul Survivor. Uh, they will say similar prayers in similar styles. And uh, what you will find is a, a kind of common context and culture which is designed to create an atmosphere within which the gifts of the Spirit can be exercised. Does this sound familiar to some of you? Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. Certainly, I've been to worship services where people have engaged in the communal singing in tongues. I've been in worship services where people have stood up from the pew and brought a word of prophecy. I've been in worship services where people have uh, come forward for healing at times of ministry and have been prayed for that they will receive healing and miracles. Uh, I've been in services where people have spoken in tongues in public and then other people have popped up and said that they've had an interpretation of what was just offered. I remember once when I was a teenager at Spring Harvest, I went to a late night so-called spiritual gifts seminar because I was fascinated. It was being led by a, a famous charismatic leader. And the expectation was very much that each of us there should ask for and receive these gifts and should then start exercising them there and then in the room. To begin nailing my own colours to the mast a bit, I found that seminar very intimidating, very manipulative, and I'm afraid I didn't stay until the end, partly because it was late night and I turn off after 10 o'clock, but that wasn't the only reason I decided to go back to my chalet to go to bed. But that is not to say that I am entirely cynical about these things, as we shall discover. Did you know, for example, that I have on occasions used the gift of speaking in tongues? More on that later. But first, a bit more history. The charismatic renewal movement of the 1970s to the present day has its origins in Wales, 
and Los Angeles. Wales first. In 1904, a young Welsh coal miner named Evan Roberts experienced a personal awakening of his already devout faith, and he started receiving visions which he ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He became convinced of the idea that all Christians should experience such uh, a manifestation of the Spirit, which would be secondary to their initial conversion to the faith. And he picked up on, he didn't invent it, but he picked up on and used the phrase baptism in the Spirit or baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is present in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 11. He picked up this phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit to describe this idea. So uh, Evan Roberts taught that you might have been baptised in water at the point of your conversion, but later you could be baptised again in the Holy Spirit. And he, he became convinced that the mark of whether someone had, be, had received this second baptism, this baptism in the Spirit, would be whether they were publicly exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So uh, he started training for ministry. He never completed his course because his preaching triggered what became known as the Welsh Revival. In October 1904, he started speaking at small meetings which were soon attracting thousands. It is estimated that through his preaching and those who picked up on it, something like 100,000 people were converted to a charismatic experience of the Spirit within a few months. These meetings were marked with people exercising the charismatic gifts and also by genuine and positive changes in their behaviour. They gave up alcohol, they stopped swearing. There are delightful stories of pit ponies no longer responding to the commands given by their masters because the language had changed so dramatically when it was stripped of the swear words that the ponies didn't know what was being asked of them any longer because they only understood it with the swear words. Evan Roberts himself sadly suffered emotional and physical collapse after about 18 months, and he retired from public ministry, moved to England, and devoted the rest of his life to prayer. The influence of the Welsh Revival itself was relatively short-lived. I mean, you know, I spent eight years uh, ministering in the Valleys Churches of South Wales. This was a very real folk memory, you know, within the culture that I was working with. Many churches that had been full at the revival were empty within a generation. You go now preaching round the Valleys Churches of South Wales, it's a handful of elderly people desperately clinging on to a memory that revival came once and might come again. You can trace the Welsh revival against the economic boom and bust created by the coal industry, but that isn't the end of its story. Revivalist missionaries took the message of being baptised in the Holy Spirit or being born again in the Holy Spirit, as they sometimes called it, they took that around the world. And the next big event was a couple of years later, in 1906, at a place called Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Directly influenced by the teaching of the Welsh Revival, but rather longer lasting, the Azusa Street Revival ran for about nine years. And it, too, was characterised by spiritual experiences with regular testimonies of physical healing miracles, worship services, including the public speaking in tongues. 
And the significance of the Azusa Street revival is that it brought spiritual revival to the impoverished black communities of the United States. And it sparked the worldwide movement now known as Pentecostalism. If you've ever seen or been to a Pentecostal church, it has its origins in the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, which has its origins in the 1904 Welsh Revival. Pentecostalism took its name again from the Book of Acts, where we've already got being baptised in the Holy Spirit from. Um, of course, the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples, being poured out on them and gifting them with speaking in tongues and, and other, other manifestations of the Spirit. And Pentecostalism believed that the gifts of Pentecost continued into the contemporary church and could be experienced Sunday by Sunday. And so the worship services of Pentecostalism, drawing, of course, on the gospel music tradition of the communities that gave shape to it, actually were again constructed to provide an environment within which the gifts of the Spirit could be exercised in public worship. And these days you can find Pentecostal churches in most countries around the world, including our own. There are many of them here in London. The Pentecostal movement directly then influenced the charismatic renewal movement where we began our trip down memory lane a few minutes ago. Bloomsbury, as a church, as far as I understand our history here, has typically resisted the influence of the charismatic tradition in our Sunday worship. To the best of my knowledge, and some of you may be able to correct me on this, we've not had speaking in tongues as part of our Sunday morning worship experience here, or testimonies of miraculous healings taking place during the services. But does this mean that we're immune from the gifts of the Spirit? I hope not, and I will get to the passage in a minute, but allow me one more historical example before I do. Some churches, particularly the strict Baptists, the particular Baptists and the Brethren, have adopted a belief known as cessationism. This is the belief that the spiritual gifts ceased with the end of the apostolic age. So these churches can't deny that miracles, healings and speaking in tongues happened because their literal approach to scripture demands that they believe that these things took place in the early church because they're there in the Bible. But what they teach is that these gifts were given to establish the church in its early years but then died out when the last of the apostles died. I think it's useful for us here at Bloomsbury to know that this other side of the coin exists. Because just as our tradition hasn't included an emphasis on charismatic renewal, I don't think it has either included the doctrine of cessationism. I don't think we believe that the activity of the Spirit of God in the world and in those who seek God in Christ finished nearly 2,000 years ago. So after all of that, what are we to make of the spiritual gifts? Well, firstly, I'd like us to hear very clearly what is said in verse 7 of our passage this morning from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
These gifts of the Spirit, whatever they are and however they are to be received, are never given just for the benefit of one section of the church, nor are they given for the primary benefit of the person receiving the gift. They may be given individually, but they are to be received communally. This phrase, for the common good, has a special resonance for me, as I've done some writing on this in the past. And it remains my firm belief that no church, no subset of any church, should ever see itself as existing just for its own benefit. It's a slightly hackneyed one-liner that I'm sure you've heard before, but the church is the only organisation that doesn't exist for the benefit of its own members. So as we look at these gifts, I want us to keep at the forefront of our minds the question of how they can contribute to the common good, how they can be of benefit to those beyond the community and individuals that receive and use them. Also, in the, in, in the interests of showing one's working, in what I'm about to offer, I'd like to say how helpful I've found the writings of Anthony Thistleton, who's one of the great New Testament scholars of the last few decades. So if you want to take your reading further, you can see where I got it from if you read his work on this. With one exception, I'm going to be taking these gifts of the Spirit that Paul lists in pairs, because I think he has them paired up in, my, in his mind when he writes them. The exception to this is the third one in the list, which is the gift of faith. And I'm going to start with this one. We don't often think of faith as a spiritual gift, but there it is nestled in the list between knowledge and healing. And I'm starting here for purely personal reasons, really, because if there is one gift on this list that I think I may have, I think it is the gift of faith. Now, before I get too big-headed, I need to own up to the fact that I hold the gift of faith alongside its invisible and unnamed counterpart, and that is the gift of doubt. There is something in me that questions everything, takes very little at face value. I always want to ask why when somebody tells me that I should believe or do something. My parents tell me that when I was a small child, I just said why to everything, and I have carried on doing that. And it's this gift of doubt, of questioning, that drove me to study biblical studies at university, to try and ask the hardest questions I could of my faith, to see if it could survive the onslaught of my mind at its most logical and questioning. I have, over the years, seen others find their faith fading in the light of the insights of historical, critical, biblical scholarship. All I can say is that mine didn't. My faith survived. It changed, it grew in some areas and shrank in others. My faith doesn't look the same now as it did when I was 19 and off to university, but then if I'm honest, neither does my body. However, despite all this, I do still have faith. And that is, I think, a gift from God. 
given to me to enable me to offer my gifts to the service of the church and the world for the common good through ministry and teaching and service. Not everyone has this, and I'm grateful that I do. Otherwise, I couldn't stand here and do what I do. But I also do want to make it clear that this gift of faith is very different from the trustful faith that every Christian has. We are, all of us, justified by grace through faith. I'm not advocating some Calvinist position of conversion where only the chosen can have the faith in Jesus that leads to salvation. We, all of us, have faith. But some of us, it seems, have an especial spiritual gifting of faith to sustain not just themselves, but the church community more widely through times of uncertainty and difficulty and doubt. So moving on from faith then, what are we to make of wisdom and knowledge? These are both Corinthian catchphrases, we might call them. They crop up again and again as you read through this letter to the church in Corinth. Wisdom, knowledge, knowledge, wisdom. And interestingly, in the letter, Paul isn't always complimentary about them. He says that his own calling to proclaim the gospel was not a calling to use wisdom. Because true faith is built on an encounter with God in Christ and not on the wisdom of words. And he says that knowledge puffs people up. And knowledge can be a stumbling block to the weak. And that in any case, knowledge will eventually pass away, leaving only love. So those of us, and I suspect there's quite a few of us here in this church, who value knowledge and prize wisdom... We need to hear that these are not the be-all and end-all of faith. As Paul puts it, if we have these but have not love, we're nothing. That said, what are they? The gift of wisdom traces its origin to our Old Testament passage for this morning from the prophet Isaiah, where we read that the Spirit of God gave wisdom and knowledge to the messianic figure. Within Judaism more broadly, wisdom was sometimes personified as a woman. So if you read through the book of Proverbs, you can find wisdom described as a woman crying out in the streets, longing for people to listen to her words. And all of this is in the background for Paul describing wisdom as a gift of the Spirit. And he probably has in mind here the idea that just as the Spirit gave wisdom to the Messiah, so that same Spirit gives wisdom to the body of the Messiah, which is the church. On this understanding, the ability to speak wisely is the gift of the Spirit. And this is to be distinguished from speech which is merely clever, which is a human construction. I find it very easy to be clever. I find it very difficult to be wise in my speech. I don't know about you. And in terms of our criteria for the common good, the world needs wise speech that will cut through the cleverness and sophistry of so much of our discourse. The ability to put the deepest knowledge into words is a rare gift and it should be valued when it is given. 
By the same token, the spiritual gift of knowledge is very different from just knowing things. You'll have heard Oscar Wilde's famous saying that a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. Well, in our information age, we now have the capacity to know everything, but still to know nothing. Go on, ask me anything. I've got Google in my pocket. I can tell you the answer. Doesn't mean I know anything. The spiritual gift of knowledge is the gift of knowing things deeply and well, and of being able to use that knowledge for the building up of others, to use that knowledge with wisdom. I tend to think that a good teacher is someone who has the gift of knowledge because they know how to handle knowledge, how to sift the wheat from the chaff, to borrow a phrase from Jesus, how to share that with others in ways that are beneficial. What the gifts of knowledge and wisdom are not, I should add, are the permission to randomly speak ad hoc messages to individuals about their condition. I've been in churches where that's happened. I've had a word of knowledge from the Lord for you. Here, let me just drop this bomb into your life and push off. That, it has always seemed to me, is an abuse of power predicated on wishful thinking. Anyway, enough said on that. Let's move on. What are we to make of healing and miracles? (laughs) There's a wonderful story in one of the Adrian Plass books when he's off to a so-called healing meeting at a church and his wife discovers him lying on his back in the hallway with his feet planted firmly against the front door. And she asks him what he's doing and he replies that he's checking his legs of the same length before he goes so that no one can have claimed to have fixed his bad back by making one of his legs grow in response to prayer. And we may laugh, and I want to laugh, But this is what people have reduced the gift of healing to. Random acts of capricious supernatural intervention to heal minor or serious ailments in response to prayer or faith. And if somebody is not healed when prayed for, the blame is put on the person not healed for not having sufficient faith to receive the healing that the Lord wishes to give them. We need to get back to the Greek if we're going to escape this nonsense. Our church Bibles translate this as gifts of healing, which unfortunately misses the fact that it is not just the word gifts which is plural in the Greek, but also the word healing. I should say gifts of healings. A better translation might be gifts for various kinds of healing. It's not one gift, nor one mode of healing. But, Simon, I can hear you asking, is there still a place for supernatural healing? Well, you may be interested to hear that one of the founders of the modern Pentecostal movement, Donald G., stated that we should not preclude the merciful and manifold work of medical healing when talking about the gift of spiritual healing. Of course, he then goes on to say that, you know, yes, spiritual healing happens. Interestingly, Paul does not refer to the gifts of healings anywhere else in his epistles outside of this one verse from 1 Corinthians. And Karl Barth, the great theologian, suggested that Paul's aim here 
is to underline the source rather than the means of healing. We need to remember that at the time Paul was writing in the first century, very little was known about the processes of healing. They had no knowledge of germs. I once remember hearing a doctor saying on a radio program, you know, if civilization collapses and you can only pass on one piece of medical knowledge to the people who are going to rebuild society in some future generation, what would it be? And he said, disease is caused by little things that are too small for you to see. And you can catch them if you don't wash your hands. They did not know that until relatively recently. We cannot judge talk about healing from the first century against standards that we have arrived at post the discovery of germs. They didn't know about microbes. They didn't know about the human immune system. Perfectly natural processes in the first century would appear miraculous and capricious, and things that seem nonsense to us were the bedrock of what they held to be medical science. The best I can offer here, it seems to me, is that the kinds of healing which are offered for the common good are probably the kinds of healing that Paul has in mind. And if we are to see what the kinds of healing that are for the common good in our world might be, I suspect they're the kinds of healings offered by medical missionaries, by doctors, nurses, research chemists, and the whole of the rest of the medical profession that keeps most of us alive a lot longer than we would be without them. Still, even so, not all are healed and we all die eventually. As Paul discovered in his prayer to be relieved of the thorn in his flesh, sometimes the gift of God in the face of illness is grace sufficient to be content in weakness. But what about miraculous healing, Simon? I can still hear you asking. You're dodging it, aren't you? My answer is itself a question. To those who want to assert a belief in the spiritual gift of miracles where certain individuals have a supernatural ability to transcend the laws of nature, tell me how this serves the common good. You see, I'm not sure it's possible to divide God's actions into two categories of natural and supernatural. If God is involved, it is supernatural even if it is also entirely natural. We must be so careful, you see, not to retrospectively impose our post-18th century Enlightenment mindset on these ancient texts, trying to make them answer questions that they're not written to answer, even though we'd love it if they did. To say that some things are miraculous and some are not can have unintended consequence of reducing rather than expanding our understanding of the scope of God's action in the world. My preferred reading of the spiritual gift of miracles and healings is that suggested by Anthony Thistleton, who says we should think of this as the ability to perform actively effective deeds of power. Not actions against nature, but actions which function so powerfully in the world that they affect the world for good. And in that, I'm going to include the doctor who prescribes me my asthma medication so that I can be fit enough to go swimming and keep myself healthy. Such interventions which originate with the gift of the Spirit of Christ can change the world far more than some parlour trick. 
more of this in a future sermon. It's time to move on. Prophecy and discernment come next. Prophecy can be thought of as declaring or telling forth the word of God. What prophecy isn't is predicting the future. Prophecy is not predicting the future in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is quite clear in drawing a distinction between prophecy and prediction. Prophecy comes from God. Prediction is what the pagan religions try and do. It isn't prediction in the New Testament either, and honestly, it isn't it today either. Prophecy and prediction are just not the same thing, and we get confused when we think they are. The Old Testament prophets mediated the word of God to Israel and told the world what God was saying. Prophecy is, I would suggest, therefore, a kind of preaching. Certainly, this seems to be how Paul saw the gift. He presents, later in the letter, prophetic speech as that which builds up the church by nurturing the faith of believers and by convincing those outside the community of the truth of the good news of Jesus. That's in chapter 14. And the test of prophecy is not whether it comes true, but the ability to discern the difference between what is generated by the human spirit and what is prompted by the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gift of discernment is the ability to discern whether someone's claim to be speaking at the prompting of the spirit is genuine. And we need this gift more than ever, with voices on the internet and in pulpits up and down the country, all trying to convince us that their words are the words of God. To which I would say, test it. Ask for the gift of discernment. Don't take my word for any of this. I'm just saying what I think God is wanting me to say. It's up to you to discern whether you think I'm right or not. In a Baptist context, the gift of discernment is exercised primarily at a congregational level. It's what our church meetings are for. They're not primarily for voting through the budget. They're meetings of communal discernment. When we gather to collectively discern the mind of Christ for our congregation and our context. Pray for the gift of discernment. We need it. And finally, we come to the gifts of tongues and interpretation. There could be a whole sermon on this alone, but I've already gone on long enough, so I'll keep it brief. It's not entirely clear what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the gift of speaking in tongues, I'm afraid. Some have suggested he means angelic speech. Others have suggested he means a miraculous ability to speak foreign languages. Others that he means liturgical language. Others that he means ecstatic speech, and others that he means a kind of verbal mechanism of release for longing or praise that is too deep for words. I think it's this last one. A kind of meditative practice, if you like, where the chanting of inarticulate syllables frees the mind from the trammels of rational thought to encounter God at levels too deep for words. As Paul himself says in Romans 8, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
So yes, I have, at times, tried this, as I have tried many other spiritual practices and disciplines. Strictly in private, as most of my spiritual devotions are. And my experience is that it can be helpful. Feel free to give it a go if you want, but not right now. Think of it as a spiritual practice that you might use when you've run out of words to say the thing that you most need to say to God. What it isn't, according to Paul, is a necessary gift to prove some second blessing, or baptism in the Spirit, or born-againness, or even salvation. But if the gift of tongues is to meet our common good test, and to go beyond private devotion, it needs something more. And this is where the gift of interpretation, of intelligent articulation of tongues speech, comes into play. Many in charismatic circles have come to regard the interpretation of tongues as a separate gift from the gift of tongues, but that's not actually the most natural way to read the Greek of this passage. Paul is clear a couple of chapters later that the tongues speaker should themselves be the person who brings a public articulation of their wordless longings. And so I think the best way to read our passage this morning is that whilst some people just have the gift of tongues, which is for use in private, others also have a secondary gift in addition to the gift of tongues that they are able to then put back into words that which they have said privately and wordlessly and share that for the benefit of others. So if you are praying at home in tongues and you sense through that moment of intimate wordless encounter with God something that you then are able to re-express back into words. That might be for the common good, and we might need to hear it. The ability to articulate deep emotions, longings and experiences for the building up of others is a rare gift, and it is valuable and precious when it is given. Communication in intelligible, rational terms to others of insights received through a gift is important if the primary gift of tongues is to serve the common good. And so to conclude, a warning. To envy someone else's gift, or conversely to question its value, is to question the sovereign, gracious will of God's Holy Spirit in determining to whom he apportions which gifts. We all need these gifts together if we are to be good news to the world. And we need to use them together for the common good of all, not just ourselves. Let us pray. Great God of the whole earth, you call us to be your body. And so today, as your body gathered in this place, we offer our whole selves to your service. May we be knit together by your spirit, so that our common life reflects your calling and your will. Direct our thoughts, words and deeds in ways that make real in this world the eternal truth of your coming kingdom. Teach our eyes to see the world as you see it, rather than as the world wants to be seen. May we learn to see through the insidious propaganda that so readily dominates human relationships, 
from the interpersonal to the international. May we learn that the other is also a child of God, as deeply loved and valued as we are ourselves. From the abstract refugee, migrant and asylum seeker, to the person we find most difficult in our day-to-day -day lives. May we discover you in those we fear. And so we pray for those who help us to see. We pray for journalists, for opinion formers, for politicians and for bloggers. We thank you for fearless truth-telling. And we pray for integrity for all those who show others what to believe. We thank you for the freedom of speech that we enjoy in this country. And we ask for your wisdom as we discern where we should direct our own eyes. May we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And as we have seen, so we must do. Teach us, living Lord, where we should take our stand. May we be released from the compulsion to aggressively defend our own territory. And instead, may we learn what it means to stand on justice and righteousness and truth. And as the firm ground of our certainties shifts beneath us, may we learn how to walk new paths of collaboration and cooperation. So we pray for our traditional enemies, for those who we instinctively stand against, and we ask that in the new world of your spirit, enemies may become friends, reaching out across borders previously uncrossed. And so we pray for Israel and Palestine, for Syria and Iraq, for South Sudan and for the countries of Europe. May peace and justice and righteousness prevail. We pray also for those who take their stand on issues of moral or theological certainty, but in so doing exclude others from your love. We rejoice in the wedding yesterday of our friend Emma to Abigail. Grant us all a vision of your universal kingdom, which recognises no divisions and transcends all borders. And as we negotiate the changing territory of our world, we pray that you will direct our actions. May the works of our hands be acceptable in your sight. May we build friendships and not enmities. May we reach out in love and acceptance to those whom others would push away. May we become your body extending a welcome to all in your name, bringing food to the hungry, clothing to the naked and healing to the sick. May our hands be generous in your service, releasing our time, talents and money to the service of your kingdom. So we pray for all those with whom we partner as we reach out to the vulnerable and hurting of this world. We commit to your care and guidance, our relationships with BMS World Mission, Christian Aid, and Amos Trust, who extend our reach around the globe. We also pray more locally for the work of London citizens, the Simon community, the C4WS Night Shelter, the Green Light Team, and the Soho Gathering.
Great God of us all, teach us to live in love. Gift us with the gifts of your spirit for the common good, that we might stand in hope and act with justice. For the sake of your kingdom. Amen. <laughs>